morning, everyone. Uh, if you can grab your Bibles and turn to, to the book of Romans. So uh, it's Romans chapter 4. If you want to look up on the screen, it might be up there. Um, and uh, I'll just pray beforehand and I'll pray for Michael, who's going to be bringing the message as well. So, Dear God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to open your word. We thank you that um, your word is... Um, everything we need to learn and to grow and to get uh, to get closer to you and um, we pray that your holy spirit will reveal it to us today we pray that you'll be with um, michael as he brings your word may you speak through him may you give him the right words to say and um, may you um, share your message to us through him god we pray this in your name amen so romans chapter four uh we're starting at verse one and um so let's start. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, count, will not count his sin. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for um, allowing me this privilege um, to speak today from God's word. Um, as many of you may know, this, uh, this isn't my day job, but um, look, I take, um, I take this opportunity very, um, yeah, very seriously and I've spent a lot of time preparing for it and have been able to grow myself quite a bit through doing this and I, um, uh, yeah, I hope and pray that you too um, may grow in your understanding of, of this, um, this portion of God's word today as we... Um, as we speak about it. So the topic uh, of my sermon today is justification by faith alone. And um, many of you may realise that's not a phrase that I've just um, sort of come up with. Um, it's a phrase that came out of the Reformation of the 16th century. Um, at the time there was a young uh, Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. And he saw at the time uh, the abuses of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was um, selling indulgences to people, uh, selling um, these indulgences for, uh, for money that people would then receive forgiveness of sins and would receive uh, pardon. And Martin Luther saw this and saw how far the church had strayed from the true gospel, the true gospel of grace. And so uh, Martin Luther and the other reformers um, rose up against this, this teaching, this false teaching, um, with the phrase, 
justification is by faith alone. And uh, practically one of the ways Martin Luther responded to this was by uh, nailing his 95 thesis or 95 arguments um, against the Roman teaching um, to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And have a photo of a younger me, um, life BC, life before children, um, when my wife and I had the opportunity to travel Europe um, and see lots of amazing places and things. And, but the topic of my talk today is not um, to brag about international doors and things that I might have gone to visit um, throughout my time, nor is it to make you feel sorry for me, perhaps for my um, peculiar travel or holiday interests, um, and not to feel sorry for my wife that I drag her along to these places. Um, I'm sure there was waffles for lunch or something interesting on that day that we had. But no, the topic or the intent of, of my sermon today, my talk today, is that we might address a number of key questions. What is justification by faith? What is faith? Um, is another second question. And what is the role of faith in justification? And um, finally, I want to look at some practical implications of justification by faith. So if we look at our text, um, Romans 4, 1 to 8, so verse 1 and 2, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he's something to boast about, but not before God. So what Paul is basically saying here is, let's look at Abraham. Abraham, the, um, the peerless example, our forefather, um, a, a model of model for the Jews, let's look to him. And particularly at the time, Paul was speaking against a lot of the Jewish rabbis who would lift up Abraham as an example of justification by works. Um, Abraham, in the Jewish people at the time, was seen as someone who lived the law perfectly, done all the right things, was therefore righteous before God. To the Jews, this might have been, at the time, case closed. But for Paul, that's not the case. Paul, the lawyer of grace, goes on in verse 3. For what does Scripture say? And here he quotes from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham does not say Abraham worked for God and therefore was justified. Nor did Abraham do acts of love and good deeds and therefore was justified. It doesn't say that Abraham made progress in character formation no it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness now this idea it was counted to him um, the words behind that is like an accounting term it was credited to him it was credited to account um, Roy's credit card from the bank of God is a good example of this it's something given to us that doesn't rightfully um, belong to us it's uh, it's imputed to us um, is the other way that says. And let's look at this, Abraham believed God. I don't know about you, but um, growing up, the idea of um, believed God or believe in God, you might associate with, oh, do you believe in ghosts or do you believe in magic or something like that? Well, this word believed has a much deeper meaning and um, is, is used further on in the chapter by Paul uh, as the word faith and the word that we know about faith. So what is faith? Um, the reformers um, in the 16th century Reformation sort of stood against the understanding that Roman church had about faith at the time, which was faith in the church, faith in the 
ordinances and sacraments of the church. The reformers responded to this and said, no, faith, there's three aspects to faith. One is knowledge, understanding what God says in his word. And then the second is assent to that knowledge or agreeing with that. Say, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. But we know in the book of James, that's not even enough. Because it says, he says there, you say you have faith. Well, even the demons believe and shudder. Just, just to believe and, and know the truth isn't enough. The third aspect of faith is this placing our personal trust into the Lord, placing a personal um, hope and, and commitment and reliance on his promises and what he has done um, is, is that important um, aspect of faith that we need, need to see here. So Abraham put his trust in God, depended on God, um, based um, his life decisions on the promises that God had given to him. That's how this personal faith comes out. But Abraham's, it wasn't actually Abraham's um, faith that saved him. It was, his, it was the object of this faith. It was what he placed his faith in that was the important thing. Let me give you an example of this one. Let's say, um, I don't know, let's say you're at home and you want to make the home a bit safer. So you think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a handrail in the bathroom. A handrail in the bathroom so that when I get into the bath, I can hold on to something and step into the bath and not fall over and hurt myself. Anyway, just go with the example here. And so what do you do? You want to get a handrail? You go down to Bunnings because that's where you go. And, um, and you go and see Glenn. You say, Glenn, I need a handrail. And Glenn says, I'm in the tool shop. I say, Glenn, get out of the tool shop. Let's go to bathroom and plumbing. I really need a handrail. So Glenn shows you all the handrails you can get. There's timber, there's stainless steel, there's chrome, there's brass, there's everything. So you're trying to save money and you're a bit Dutch. So you end up buying the second least expensive one and you grab this handrail, you take it home, you hold on to it for dear life, you step into the bathtub, you fall over, crack your head, blood everywhere. You say, this isn't right. That's it. I'm going to sue Bunnings. You go back to Glenn and say, Glenn, this handrail is broken. It's useless. It's no good to me at all. And Glenn's like, what, what are you talking about? Show me, show me the handrail. What's wrong with it? Is there a problem here or what? Show me. No, don't look. I grabbed it. I held on to it. I fell in the bath. Look, I've hurt myself. This just isn't right. Glenn's like, well, what did you fix it to? What did you attach it to? How did you put it to the walls? Oh, I didn't. I just held on to it and stepped into the bath. In the same way, our faith is useless unless it is fixed on Christ, unless it is fixed on his work on the cross, unless it is fixed on his righteousness. You see, we can compare faith, uh, as a quote from John Calvin, I'll put up uh, here as well too, we compare faith to a kind of vessel. For unless we come empty and with the mouth of our soul open to seek Christ's grace, we're not capable of receiving Christ. You see, this idea of, of coming in faith to God is coming with nothing, coming open, coming wanting to receive his blessing, coming wanting to receive his righteousness. King David, who um, we talked about in our text as well, who knows forgiveness, says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Saving faith is humble because by nature it despairs of self and looks to God for his sovereign, free and unmerited grace. It would be remiss of me to talk about faith here without talking about repentance as well too. Say... Say this, say this iPad here is, is, is my sin. And say, um, iPads may well be a sin or a distraction for people as well too. But let's say we're holding on to this sin. And God's calling us to turn to him. And we're coming and trying to reach him. But we're, we're busy holding on to our sin as well too. No, in repentance we let go of our sin. 
we put that aside and we come open and willing with nothing, with no works, with nothing to prop us up, with nothing else to give us our confidence, where we come open and willing to receive his gift of grace. That's what Paul is doing here with our text in verse 3. He's saying to us, Abraham came with nothing. It was not by works at all. It was not by what Abraham had done, his ability to uphold the law. Paul destroys that argument and says it was by faith and faith alone that Abraham was justified before God. And it wasn't the greatness of Abraham's faith, but it was the greatness of the gracious God in which he put his trust that saved him. And that's the point as we go on in verse 4. If, if Abraham had worked at this faith, he could have claimed a stake in it. He could have said, I did that. It was me. But in verse 4, we read, no, to the, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a gift, but as his due. If Abraham worked for it, he'd be able to boast about it. He'd be able to say, I did this. But it's by grace. It's the gift that's given to us. If we go on in verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We see here again a picture in verse 5. Paul's pointing to the moment of justification. Now justification is, is something that God declares over us. It's something that God says. God as judge declares us to be justified. It's, um, the opposite of justification is or to justify is to condemn. Um, it's, so it's not, it's not to be made righteous, it's declared righteous. Being made righteous is, is, is sanctification, as, as Andrew spoke about last week. And the sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong process where we work with the Spirit. But justification is something that God does and God declares. It's his work and it's his decision over us. This is actually quite different to the understanding that the reformers had with the Catholic Church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, because their understanding of justification was that a person is made righteous. And this was expressed in the Catholic Church by the idea that at baptism, uh, a person would be uh, infused with righteousness or, or filled with righteousness, kind of like... Um, Kind of like when you fill up your car with petrol, you, you, it was, it was, they were filled up. But then as a person went through life under the Catholic understanding, um, they could lose that state of justification by sinning and they could create, commit certain types of sins um, and in which they would then need to go to confession and then they would need to do uh, penance. So penance would be then this, this work that would bring this back into this right standing with God. And then following from that... Um, when a person would die, they would not be completely righteous. They would then need to spend time in purgatory to be, um, for, their, um, for their sins to be purged, to be made clean. So through this idea, there was just never a, a certainty in justification. And it was dependent on our works in penance, our works in... Um, uh, and, our, and our works being done in, in per, through purgatory. But we see here in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness. So this idea that, um, that Paul says here now, um, believes in him, God who justifies the ungodly. How, how does that work? How can God declare someone to be righteous? How can God justify someone who is ungodly? We see in um, Proverbs 17 verse 5, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. 
So how can God declare someone to be righteous when they are, when they are wicked? The answer, of course, lies in Romans 5, 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ paid the, sin, the price for our sin. Christ um, died on the cross and it was his sacrifice um, that has paid the penalty for each and every one of our sins. This, um, and again, we see this idea as being our faith is counted as righteousness. Um, often when we look at justification, we see it as this idea of our sins are forgiven. But it is more than that. It's more than our sins forgiven. Being counted righteousness, being counted as righteous, is actually God crediting to us a righteousness that is not our own. Christ lived on this earth, filled the law perfectly, he was um, the model of perfect righteousness, as we see. So by his life, he, he lived uh, a life of righteousness. By his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for each of our sins. But by his resurrection, we too are, are partakers in that righteousness of his um, that, is now, um, that we are now counted. It's now credited to us um, in, in, um, in this work in justification. Paul goes on to speak as um, in verses 6 and 8, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David uses, uh, Paul and David use the word blessed. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. In forgiveness we are blessed. Blessed are the one whose sins are covered. This idea of being covered in, and cloaked um, in the righteousness of another. This is, um, as Martin Luther calls, a, um, um, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own but is another. And there's images all through Scripture. For Martin Luther, this idea of this righteousness that is not our own um, being um, uh, credited to us, imputed to, uh, to us, was just the watershed moment where all of Scripture started to make sense for him. <clears throat> Let's have a look back, um, going back through Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I know Andrew the other week was talking about um, fashion sense, but I'm not the one to talk about fashion or anything like that. But, but imagine that, garments made by the Lord. That'd be pretty cool. But that's not the point of Genesis 3.21 here. This is God's first act in redemption. Adam and Eve's sin, their guilt, their nakedness, their shame is covered by what God provides. And that's an image of Christ. Isaiah goes on, For he, God, has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And of course, we now hear sing the, um, that great hymn, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his rightness, righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. And we talk about um, forgiveness of sin, our sin being imputed to God, uh, being imputed to Christ on the cross, and then his righteousness being imputed to us. Uh, an example of that may be, and it's as common at our house, but... Maybe two of my kids, David and Hannah, might be outside playing and 
David will run inside saying, Dad, Hannah's crying, she's fell off the trampoline, but I didn't do it. We're like, okay, okay, but, but did you see if she's okay? Um, this might be the youngest child just making more noise than they should and demanding attention that they probably don't quite deserve, but that does sometimes happen. I'm a middle child, so I don't really have, have my own problems there. But, um, but the, the point is that often we think, oh God, I haven't done the wrong thing, but have we done the right thing? And we know we don't always do the right thing. We know we don't always act in the right way. and We miss opportunities as well too. But in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We get his record put to our account. And what a blessing that is, as Paul speaks um, and gives the example of David here to us. So, just to step back a little bit, for justification, what are, we, what are we really talking about here? Well, well imagine, imagine his judgment day. Imagine we stand before God. And imagine he calls out your name, guilty, for all eternity. What a terrible, terrible thing. But then we hear, we hear our name called again and we hear God's voice and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not guilty, righteous for all eternity. This is, it's, it's the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's, it's, it's what we need to know. We need to understand this doctrine. We need to let it, let it fill our lives we need to we need to speak it to others as well too and and i give the example of 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 the catholic church earlier not so much to sort of put a divide between um or to or to ridicule it all but more to help us understand um the two contrasting views of being declared righteous by god um, as opposed to what we see in sanctification being made righteous before god and and i think it's helpful because often I don't know, we talk to people about our faith and people might say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian or, or you know, I, went, I was baptised in a Catholic church. I, I don't even know what that means, but that, that's, I was baptised sort of thing. And, okay, well, let's have a talk. Let's talk about being right with God. Let's talk about um, how we stand before a holy God. So there were just... Um, I want to look to it, just some, some practical implications of justification by faith alone. And three ways in which um, uh, this can have real uh, impact in our everyday uh, lives, um, in particular ways that um, our culture sort of struggles with. And those three areas are with our own identity, with our anxiety, and, uh, and with our, our intimacy. So first of all, I want to look at um, identity. Um, this first idea is simple but revolutionary. The doctrine of justification by faith gives you completely new self-understanding found outside of yourself in Christ. This is actually countercultural. Like we live in a society that tells us our worth, um, um, our, sense of, our sense of value is in us, is in what we have done, is in what we have achieved. If we want to be uh, fit, we need to go, go to the gym. If we need to be, um, uh, be healthy, we need to eat well. If we want um, uh, more money, we need to work harder, work longer. But no, in justification by faith alone, our sense of worth, our identity is in that of another. Our identity is in Christ. In Christ, you are chosen in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You're accepted in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. 
you are righteous in Christ, you are beloved in Christ, and you are complete in Christ. Secondly, it appeals to our anxiety. Um, the doctrine teaches that um, that old way of trying to justify our existence by our work, justification by faith alone tells us that you have died to that way of living. This idea of feeling um, that we are not, um, uh, uh, that we, that we have, have failed, that we have let God down, this idea of thinking that we um, are, are therefore separate from Him and distant from Him, justification by faith alone, with Christ's righteousness, His record before us, teaches us that we don't work for God's approval, we have God's approval. We have His approval and then we go out and do works. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes we may get caught up with the idea of working hard um, as a Christian, working hard trying to do um, the right thing. But does it fall back to our faith in Christ and our faith in the work that He has already done for us? In church community, we may look around and we may feel, oh, I just my life's just not, not that good. I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as much as a Christian as... As someone else, I don't know. We might look at um, we might look at the great work that say like that hope builders do, and the, the fantastic work that people do involved in that, and say, I could never be involved in that. I, I, I could never. Um, I'm just not good enough. I haven't done the sort of things. Sorry, I haven't done the sort of things that those people have. God's pos- not possibly going to accept me. But in justification by faith alone, we share a unity. It's not our righteousness, it's not our works, it's not our deeds that give us a right standing before God, it's Christ's. His standard of law keeping, his standard of perfection is given to us and God sees us through him and that gives us a real sense of unity in community. We are all forgiven equally and we are all inherit, we all wear this robe of righteousness of Christ as well too. Um, Andrew mentioned the other week that a pl- church can be a place of judgment um, and, and, and feeling um, less about ourselves. But really, this unity in Christ is, is the great leveler within a church community that we can all be seen as the same in that sense before God. We inherit His righteousness and our record, our works, don't affect our standing with God um, in that sense. And finally... Justification by faith alone speaks to um, our intimacy. Intimacy um, can address that distance we may feel with God, uh, especially at times when we're conscious of our own sinfulness and failure. Justification says God is closer to us and more intimate than we can ever imagine. You may know that feeling you have if, um, if you've wronged or had an argument with a friend or, or even your, your, um, your husband or wife, and, and there's just it, it takes that little bit to get back uh, to a sense of closeness, a sense of intimacy. Um, well, we know now in justification by faith alone that since we are justified through faith, Paul goes on in Romans 5 to tell us, we now have peace with God through Christ. We don't have to come before God with a sense of feeling of, of not living up to the right standard, but if we come open, ready and in receiving His gift of righteousness, His gift of grace to us, we can come before God in a closeness, in a, um, in a true sense of intimacy with God, and this plays out in community as well too. We have all been equally forgiven, we have all been equally, uh, and are all equally um, 
righteous based on the work that Christ has done um, before us, and we share that, um, and we share that common unity in Christ. Our identity is no longer the sum total of all our preferences and all our choices, but our identity then is in Christ. We don't receive the credit um, or the blame for things because that's forgiven, that's nailed to the cross. God is a just judge, doesn't bring up our sin, doesn't bring up what we have done um, and, and, and want to punish us again for that. No, all that punishment has been paid by Christ on the cross. Our identity is not found within ourselves, but it is found with another. Who are you? You don't stand alone. Who are you? You are Christ's. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that we are not dependent on our own works. We thank you that it's not um, our record that stands, that our record that we are judged by. We thank you that by your great love and by your grace, you descended from high and kept the law perfectly. You lived the perfect life and you gave yourself up for us on the cross that our sin, our sin that we should be punished for, was punished, was worn by you, that you bore, bore the punishment, that you bore the pain for that. And that by your life, by your resurrection, we too, um, as we receive you with open arms, as we come to you uh, in faith, as we leave our own works and our own strengths behind, will we come solely resting and depending on you. Just as the Israelites were to look up at the, the bronze snake in the Old Testament there and just to look on that and be healed, so too we look to you, we look to the cross to be healed. Before you, Lord God, we acknowledge our sinfulness and we rest wholly and fully on the great work that you have done. Amen.